invite you, if you have not already done so, to turn in the Bible to the book of 1 Corinthians. Book of 1 Corinthians. I'll mention that having passed uh, through a bout of sickness, I am told one of the lingering symptoms may be shortness of breath, and I definitely feel that. And I immediately brought to mind something that I read in one of our homiletical books, a book on preaching in seminary. They give us a book that said, every pastor ought to preach as if he had asthma, so that you're not speaking so fast. I've certainly been guilty of speaking fast. So this may be the Lord's blessing upon you, uh, but if you wonder why I'm gasping at any point, it's probably that reason. This evening, Lord willing... We are going to continue a series on 2 Samuel. I hope that you can be there for that as we look at what we learn in a song written by David at a time of lament. But this morning, we're continuing a series following the outline of biblical doctrines contained in what we call the Heidelberg Catechism, several centuries old document that summarizes what the Bible teaches. And we come at this morning to some of the questions in Lord's Day 15. Lord's Day 15 raises questions about why of all the deaths that Jesus could have died, why was he crucified? And this is a perennial question. It's a question that goes back to the earliest Christians as well. The passage that we draw from this morning is one where the Apostle Paul is writing to a young church in a relative metropolis of that time, the city of Corinth. There's about 100,000 people densely packed. And they are under pressure to give an account for why they worship someone whom they regard as God, who was at the same time exposed to the most shameful, one of the most horrible deaths. And Paul's response is essentially to say, you must understand that not only Christ's death was essential for our salvation, but the very kind of death was essential for us to receive with great comfort the promises of God. And that's what we consider this morning as we look, give our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's ask the Lord's special blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, we, your people, need nourishment from your word. You tell us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Some of us have fed this morning even on your promises. Others, it's been a while. And we need to be built up again through your gospel. And we ask that as we hear these things, your Holy Spirit would grant us enlightening of mind and heart 
that you would stir us to respond with great gratitude for your extraordinary love in Christ. We pray these things in his precious name, trusting in your Holy Spirit. God's people pray. Amen. The number of ways that people have died in the world is virtually innumerable. And God, who is sovereign over all things, though he uses human agents, was free to choose how the Son of God would experience death. Why then of all the deaths he might die was crucifixion appointed? Now, it's a common belief among Christians, maybe there are a few here who hold this idea, and it's probably more common among the young, that the reason why Jesus was crucified was because it was the most agonizing, the most painful way to die. Now, whether or not that is true, that's not the reason that the Bible itself emphasizes for why that was the death of all deaths. And it certainly wasn't because it was a death that was likely to gain the admiration of the cultures that existed at the time when the apostles first went out with this message. In fact, exactly the opposite. It was a death that, of all deaths, would cause offense, would cause scandal. The idea that you worship somebody who is crucified. Now, the place where... The Corinthians live, as I mentioned, it was something of a metropolis. It was about 100,000 people. If you were to go online, there are, uh, if you just search Corinth 3D rendering, you can see that there are videos of what Corinth looked like at the time, based on archaeological research. It would astound you. These are not so-called backwards people. These were the, the knife edge of the educated of their day. And the wealth of Corinth as a major trading center standing between Rome and Greece. The wealth attracted many of the brightest, many of the most brilliant people. And so you have philosophers who in their time were treated more like rock stars. They could attract huge crowds, thousands of people to come and hear them debate on any topic. And sometimes the topics wouldn't even be announced until just before, so they couldn't prepare. And so it attracted these brilliant thinkers, the wise And then it also attracted many of the Jews. Roughly one-tenth of the Roman Empire was comprised of Jews, a substantial number. And Corinth had one of the more influential synagogues. And so they had a number of scribes there. You can imagine then that there was a certain tension felt by the Christians in this small church, in this plant. Why aren't more of the intelligent and educated among us. Why does it seem that the church is composed mostly of very ordinary people? And why are we being beset with accusations that our Savior can't possibly be the Savior if he was crucified? You get the sense of this in verse 20. Look with me. You see that Paul voices their concerns here, probably based on a letter that they had written to them. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Why aren't the most educated and the most sophisticated, the most savvy members of the church? And then he responds in verse 20, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The wisdom of this world, for all that it can accomplish technologically, therapeutically, does not ever bring people to reconciliation with God. It cannot do that because the most the world can strive for is to know how to be a better person. But that doesn't deal with the consequences of present and past sin, let alone future sin. And so God in the cross has revealed his power and his wisdom in a way that the world would never have expected. This morning, the Holy Spirit lays before you the wisdom and the power of the cross in order that you who do believe would rejoice in it. And if there is anyone who has not believed, that you would turn from the wisdom of this world and lay your hope in the only place that it can find satisfaction. So these are the things that we consider this morning. As we do so, we're going to look at this passage and these ideas under three main headings. I'm going to announce each of them as we come to them. But in the very first place, I invite you to consider whom we preach. And if I were to ask you, whom do we preach? And if I really wanted you to shout back, and I'm not asking for that, I trust the answer of many would be Jesus. And that's absolutely true. But we must never forget that he is the Christ. He is the Savior, but he doesn't save merely by bringing some set of teachings, a philosophy. He is the Savior, but he saves by being the Christ. And Paul says in verse 23, we preach Christ. That's what we're proclaiming. Now, what does Christ mean? Generally speaking, it refers to the anointing of God. Under the Old Covenant, only three types of persons received God's special anointing for office. Prophets, priests, and kings. And all of these were types of one who was to come. There were many prophecies in the Old Testament saying that there would be the chosen one, the Christ. And the proclamation of the apostles is that Jesus is that one who would come to reconcile sinners to God. That he would be the savior of God's people. Right there, you have an offense to the vast majority of persons. The vast majority of persons do not want to believe that they need a Christ. They may want to become a kind of Christ. They want to receive God's power and they become better and better and become acceptable. And so there's offense just in the word Christ, but notice that there is additional offense. Look at verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. And there's something about that crucifixion of Christ, which in particular, he says, is a stumbling block to Jews and folly, foolishness to Gentiles. Children, Gentiles are simply people who are not descended from Abraham, who are not the blood descendants. And there's something foolishness, or something foolish about the cross to the world. And so our first heading, our first main idea is to understand and appreciate why the cross seemed foolish then, in order that we might accept that it will seem foolish now. If you don't settle on that fact, you are going to have additional struggles as a Christian. There are plenty already. But the struggle of expecting, wondering, why doesn't the world accept this? They're not going to, the vast majority, because it doesn't conform to their wisdom. Paul says that Christ crucified seems like folly 
to the Gentiles. Why was that? In the culture of that time, pagan people throughout Greece and Rome had an idea of spiritual things. And basically, they believed that the more spiritual something or someone is, the less it will have to do with physical things, the things of this world. And so, supreme God, you can find in the various ancient philosophers, is viewed as having no point intersecting with the lower things. And therefore, it's unthinkable. It was really, truly unthinkable to the culture of that day that God on high would not only come down and dwell among people as an ordinary person, Jesus of Nazareth, but of all things, to be born among the Jews. The Greeks did not look up to the Jews. They saw them as a backwards people, a superstitious people. And let alone that he would subject himself to the indignity, the humiliation, the injustice of death on the cross as he was. So that when Greeks and Romans heard the apostles explaining these things, the vast majority of them said, how can you possibly think God would be that way? They expected God to conform to their wisdom, their preconceptions. And the reality is, and you have to understand this, every person apart from a tremendous and miraculous work of the Holy Spirit operates with their own preconceptions about who God is and what he is like. Some come from their own hearts, some come from the world around them. But we have to be conformed to the true witness of the word. God himself is the only perfect authority on God. But it seemed like foolishness to them. There's an illustration, we get a taste for just how foolish this seemed, in something that was unearthed only in the last several decades. Archaeologists working in the city of Rome found graffiti on a wall. As they were digging, they found graffiti on a wall, and it was near the Circus Maximus, this picture on a wall. Somebody had taken probably charcoal, which is very permanent. Any parent who has a barbecue and a child and a wall knows this. And somebody had taken and drawn on the wall a picture of a person who was crucified. But the crucified person, instead of having a a human head had the head of a donkey. This is what the archaeologists found. A crucified person but with the head of a donkey. And then underneath that was drawn a picture of a person on their knees with their head bowed and their arms raised, as if in worship. And then these words were written. Alexamenos worships an ass. And so you have somebody who's making fun of Christians You have somebody who's making fun of Christians, and this has survived down on this wall. That's how they looked at the Christian faith. That's so foolish to think that God would subject himself to that. It's such a part of the culture now. Christianity has so pervaded for nearly 2,000 years that many people do have an idea. maybe, Maybe that's how people think of God. But that was radically opposed to the world's mindset of the time. Christianity was born to endure standing on the outside. And we get used to it again, don't we? The Lord brought them through that, and we too. And likewise, the Jews, it was a stumbling block. That's what Paul says here. And he was himself a Jew who stumbled over this. He tripped on it. It seemed like a deal breaker to believe that God would be crucified. The Savior, the Christ, crucified. Crucified. 
but the Jews for a different reason. And it had to do with their law. I invite you to turn with me, Deuteronomy chapter 21, Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Bible, to chapter 21. Of course, the law which God gave through Moses for his old covenant people contained all kinds of rules and regulations, some that were civil in nature, others that were ritualistic. And some of those laws had to do with capital punishment, naturally. When you're dealing with a whole nation, you're going to have laws that deal with punishment. Under the Mosaic law, if a person committed a capital crime, the typical means of death was stoning. But if a person was guilty of an especially heinous crime, God permitted his people to make a special example of those criminals. And the way that they would do that, as gruesome and as awful as it is, was to take the deceased body of that criminal and to affix it on a post or to a tree. Basically as if to say, look at this person, here's an example of great sin and the consequences of it. And it's as if the person has no place, either in heaven or on earth. And this is what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22. God says... If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, and that same word can be also translated a pole, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God, and you shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. In other words, the Lord says that, remember, many things ritualistically under the law would defile the land and would defile people, such as touching a dead body. But especially a person who has been condemned to death and hung up in that way, the Lord says, even to leave them up for a period of time beyond that same day would amount to defiling the land. And you are to take that person down after the example has been made and you put them into the earth And to understand God's curse is upon that person. God himself bears witness in that way to his judgment. And this presents a tremendous stumbling block to the believing Jew. Because if God has pronounced a curse upon anyone whose body is exposed in that way, and the Sanhedrin are aware of what's going on, they want him exposed in that way, the Jewish leaders, they want him to be positioned as accursed. Though, of course, we know it will tremendously backfire upon them. But for the Jew who hears this, they think, how can the Christ be cursed? How can that, let alone, be our God whom we worship? And so these things seem like foolishness, and yet Paul says in verse 24, we preach Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In every age, Satan raises up challenges that make the cross seem foolish. In our own day, it's somewhat related, but also somewhat different challenges. But we have to hold to this fact. The cross is the power. It is the wisdom of God. And many different aspects could be brought forward, but I intend with what time remains to bring forward to you only two of the aspects of the power and the wisdom of God. The first of these two is this. Crucifixion of all ways to die was especially chosen by God because of the way that it sets forth Christ's death as both judicial, and we'll come back to that, 
but also as being the death of a righteous man. It was judicial, but also of a righteous man. And we'll look at both of these here. The cross did that in a way that other deaths would not do. If you had asked people the week before Jesus was killed as he's coming into Jerusalem, how is Jesus likely to die? Crucifixion was probably not the chief guess. More likely, probably would have seen death by a mob or death by assassination. And yet neither of those turns out to be God's means. In each of those deaths, whether by a mob or by assassination, we would have lost the opportunity to see such a display, an open demonstration of the innocence of Christ, which for every Christian is a great consolation. It didn't happen in some back alley somewhere, but rather under the preeminent authority, even a third party, not even a Jew, but Pontius Pilate, a leader of the Gentiles, a Roman trained in law by the people who were most admired for legal understanding. And Pontius Pilate examines Jesus based on the charges that were made. Now, the Sanhedrin's primary charge was that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. And that was blasphemy against the God of Israel, but that wouldn't hold up in a Roman court. They didn't have a high regard for the God of Israel. So instead, the Sanhedrin charges Jesus with sedition, treason against Caesar. That's a big crime, and it would be worthy of crucifixion under Roman law. But Pilate examines him, and multiple times the Gospels say he sends Jesus away. He says, I can't find anything wrong with him. I don't see any reason to die here. And so he sends him to Herod, and Herod sends him back. And then finally, do you remember what happens? And this is all by God's sovereign, providential purposing, so that we might have this comfort. Pilate, before all, washes his hands, dries them as if to say, I am clean of this man's death. Pilate doesn't want to get in trouble, and there are plenty of reasons that the Jews can bring to Caesar against Pilate. And so he bows to this unjust desire, the demand of the crowd to kill Jesus. There is, by the way, another trial taking place at this very same moment. And that is the trial of humanity, the trial of the world. Because when confronted with, you have like a microcosm, a little picture, a diorama. You have this diorama of the whole world here with Rome representing all the world and the best it has to offer. You've got the Jews, God's covenant people. And when presented with a righteous man, fully knowing he's innocent, what do they do? They kill him. Pilate, even if he doesn't know that Jesus is God, nevertheless knows he's innocent. And we get a taste. This is what humanity does. This is what lurks in our hearts. No one of us should say, I would never, ever, could never do anything like that. Too many instances in history demonstrate that this sin runs deep in all people. Humanity is put on trial and humanity is found to be incredibly wicked. But at the same time, the very nature of this death is one that shows us the righteousness, the innocence of Christ And presents to us his death as a judicial kind of death. Hear what our catechism says about this. Question and answer 38. Why did Jesus suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? And it's part of our creed. Pontius Pilate, why does that make it in there? You don't find the name of Paul in our creed, but this pagan. The answer is so that he, though innocent, might be condemned by an earthly judge 
and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. It triggers in our mind every time you think of the cross that it's a capital, it's not a mob killing. It's a legal death. And you stood, I stood, under the legal sentence of God for our sin. He's not Pontius Pilate. He can't wash his hands and do nothing about evil. God must do what is just. And that then brings us to the second aspect of wisdom in the cross. It was specially appointed by God to demonstrate his power and his pleasure to forgive all of our sins. Look with me at verse 24. This is the third and final heading. Verse 24, we preach Christ crucified. It goes on and says, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Of course, God is neither foolish or weak. But when he does things that seem foolish, we often think he is foolish. And when he doesn't exert power in the way we expect, we think he's weak. But in that moment, as Christ is dying on the cross and God seems weak, there his strength is being manifested because he's doing what all the wisdom, if God had allowed you to live 10,000 years, you had never thought of. How to reconcile yourself to an infinitely holy, perfect being who transcends all categories of human conception. God is not a plaything of the human mind. Humans are created by God infinitely smaller, accountable. We have consciences. And Christ did what we could not do. Follow the argument of the apostle in 1 Corinthians. In effect, he's saying we were all under the curse. The Jews stumble over the fact that Jesus was in the position of an accursed person at his death. But have they missed what the law also says? Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, I don't ask that you turn there, but listen. The same law says, Cursed is anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Not by doing some of them, but even the grammar presents it as something that they do all the time. Cursed is the person who does not fulfill the law. And so you're presented with a choice, be reconciled to God on the basis of your works or some other way. But what is the other way? And that's exactly Paul's point about the wisdom of God. Turn with me and look at one other passage, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, Paul is explaining and applying the rationale for Jesus' death by crucifixion. Beginning at verse 10, follow with me, because it's several verses up to verse 13. It says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now that doesn't have to look, I want to be clear, that doesn't have to look like following the law in the way that strict Jews did and some do. Even this week, actually, I was looking, I was checking out the website of a Phoenix synagogue and trying to learn about their beliefs, not all, just like churches, they don't all believe identically. And I ended up on one of their pages about uh, facility rentals. 
I was just interested. What's their policy? Can we borrow parts of it? And I saw, of course, all of their rules about uh, food. And that included that you, on Sabbath, are allowed to bring the food up to, I think it was something like 118 degrees to warm it, but you can't cook it. So there's a specific cutoff point, temperature-wise. It doesn't have to look like that to be what Paul's talking about when he says, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Because the law is more than the rituals. It's do not lie, do not steal, do not murder. And Jesus says even to look with hate violates that in principle. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Verse 11, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. And he's quoting Habakkuk 2. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith. That is the principle of trying to be justified by the law is a total contrast to the principle of being justified by faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The blessing of Abraham of which he speaks is the fact that God justified Abraham by faith alone. Go back to Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. God chose freely to receive someone not having to do with their own righteousness at all. I know most of you have heard this 10,000 times. And if you're anything like me at all, I know that 10,000 times we default back to thinking that we have to be so good to gain God's favor. He's a loving father. Of course he doesn't like when we sin. In our confession portion this morning, 1 Peter says, as obedient children, we ought to obey. But that's not why he has parental love toward you. But rather this, that Christ was sent forth by the Father to bear the curse. And he even submitted to a death which of all deaths would confirm to his covenant people, he has been accursed. There's no more curse. And that means that when we, Lord willing, go before him in prayer or go before him in glory, our only hope can be he was crucified and he was raised. And this for us then demonstrates the power and the wisdom of God's cross for us. By way of conclusion, I want to draw your attention back to, in some ways, what is the key question of 1 Corinthians 1, the passage we were looking at. And the question is, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Verse 22, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, modern Americans seek things too. You seek things as the standard by which you are willing to stake your life, your eternity, Many people seek personal peace and affluence, and they put all thought of God out of their mind, all thought of eternity. And most of those people are defaulting to this idea, if there is something beyond this life, then I trust that I was decent and that whatever being rules is decent, and he'll see that I'm decent and we'll be fine. 
The Bible says that is the wisdom of this world. It is weak, and it will not stand up. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. God will make all of that worldly wisdom look so foolish on that day. But on the other hand, to everyone who believes, God is the power of life. And he doesn't ask you to find that power in yourself, but he does say, believe on me. And I leave you with this as one image concerning the cross. Don't ask that you turn there. But you may not know, or maybe you know, in the Old Testament, God arranged an experience for the people of Israel. Where they were, many people were bitten by snakes and they were dying. And the Lord promised this kind of strange miracle would happen. Aaron was instructed to take a bronze serpent, this figure, and put it on a, a post. And to hold it up high, high over all the children of Israel. And they were told to tell the children of Israel, whoever looks at that will be cured. They will not die. And they didn't have to understand how it worked. They didn't have to know why or in what way God miraculously formed anti-venom in their blood. As their, Who knows? Because God's point wasn't to inform them of those things. It was to direct their faith towards his promise. And Jesus says in John chapter 3, Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. The cross was wise because it places Christ in a position held aloft to the whole world with a placard over his head in all the major languages of the day saying, look to me, look to me and be saved. How hard is that? Look to me. Faith is the eye. It receives the promise. And so I lay before you these things so familiar to many and yet always necessary. Keep looking to Christ and receive great delight in this I encourage you thank God from your hearts afresh this day that he was willing to endure these things that his wisdom was so attuned to our needs and our doubts and seeing that Christ is lifted up for all may the Lord help us then to be eager to share the gospel with all knowing that the great majority will reject it but knowing that he's gathering a people May he bless it then. Let's ask his blessing even now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you give us firm hope that you receive us forever. The things of this life, delightful as they are, could never satisfy for eternity. They would become stale, old bread. We pray for the new bread of Christ, the fresh, everlasting manna. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would prepare us even this afternoon as we anticipate partaking in the supper, 
that we would come with great thankfulness and joy to commune with our Savior. We pray that you would make us courageous, knowing that you have chosen a people who will respond, not many wise, not many who are great in the sight of the world. You have chosen the off-scouring to glorify your strength and your grace. We thank you for these things, and we ask you to bless them in Jesus' name. Amen.